0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ 91.5. I'm Steve Beineman today for Jerome McDonald. Now, I'm looking at my colleagues across the glass. I'm about to make a confession. For almost 40 years, I've been a huge fan of the soap opera General Hospital. People are laughing at me. That's okay. But I'm not the only one who has this guilty pleasure, because each evening during Ramadan, men and women alike gather around the television sets in Egypt, for the wildly popular TV dramas called Musal Salat. <laughs> Okay, so you don't have to know Arabic to get the gist of it, right? I mean, if you watch TV dramas at all, especially the campy ones, you kind of get the gist of what's going on. So that was a clip from the trailer, The Joys of the Dome, a drama adapted from the famous novel by Naguib Mahfouz. But in the past couple of years, the Egyptian state has cracked down on dissent and imposed harsh restrictions on what these dramas can depict. And so with us to talk about uh, Masoud Salat is Azathine Fisher. She, uh, he's a visiting professor at Dartmouth College's political science department, and his published work has been adapted for Egyptian TV dramas. Thank you, Professor, for joining us.
1: Thank you. my pleasure.
0: So let me ask you, Professor uh, are these soap operas a guilty pleasure for you, or is it strictly an academic um, pursuit?
1: I was just going to share a confession with you. You're not the only one. <laughs> I like uh, probably millions of Egyptians and, and Arabs in the whole um, in the Middle East. Um, we share those kind of pleasures, and we all grew up watching uh, Musal Salet and in a way, those Salat have contributed to shaping not just how the people kind of feel about things, but how, how they see things and the the value system is also shaped and affected by those musalsalas. Those are one of the things that most people watch.
0: So, Professor, um, these soap operas, they tend to um, give these um, um, exaggerated examples of things in the culture. So you'll have this sort of grotesque wealth and in American soap operas and this hyper-sensuality and things of that nature, sort of the stereotypes of the cultures. And so how do these soap operas um, project Egyptian culture and the Egyptian ethos?
1: Well, like, um, like soap operas elsewhere, though some of them are better than others. So mm. some of them have this melodramatic Um, excessive expressions of emotions and cultural icons and so on. And Some of them are pretty good. You mentioned uh, one that's made out of Mahfouz, the Nobel uh, literature um, um, Egyptian author, um, and many other kind of important Egyptian authors have written for those musal salats. Some of them are about, you know, depict historical events. Some of them are about Egypt and its struggles. So there are all sorts of musal salat, And this is how they cater for different audiences. But generally, the implicit messages and values that are represented in those musal salat, one, they reflect how people live and how people think and feel and mm-hmm. communicate. But also they shape this for the next generation. It's part of the socialization process.
0: So, Professor, uh, because these soap operas, Musel Salat, um, depicts and um, so many aspects of Egyptian culture and life, obviously there can be subtext involved. And I think it's the perceived subtext, if not real subtext, that can get these soap operas um drawing attention from uh, their governments, correct?
1: Correct. And the subtext is most of the time much more important. Um, it's, and it's, some of them are um, culture, like how men and women um, interact, and what kind of relationship, the hierarchies, the equalities. And some of them are political because it's about how you depict, for example, um, police officers or uh, figures of authority. And this has drawn the attention of the state, Um, Not just now, but this had drawn their attention since um, the 1950s. Since 1960, when when TV was introduced in Egypt.
0: Hmm. So let's sort of talk about what's been going on with these soap operas of late. Um, Obviously, you had the Arab Spring five, six years ago. And um, did did you see a shift in the messages from these soap operas and... um, was it any kind of shift that caused, let's say, um, former President Morsi or um, current uh, General President uh, Sisi to pay attention, or is it just wanting to get on top of it to make sure that these uh, soap operas don't project images and messages that go against the state as they perceive it?
2: You
1: now, soap operas, um, like other cultural expressions in Egypt, have seen important transformations since the year 2000 with the relative openness that the, the last decade of Mubarak's rule has witnessed, there were more dissent and different voices expressing themselves in those musal salat. And you could see depictions um, of especially symbols of the state, the corruption, state uh, police brutality, and so on, are becoming the norm. Now, With and that, you know, Tahrir uprising kind of built and benefited from all of this. So, part of the current repression and the current restoration of order and emphasis on hierarchy is to kind of gain control over this, to stop all these um, dissenting voices that are seen as responsible for, uh, quote unquote, the chaos of the Tahrir uprising.
0: This is Worldview on WBEZ 91.5. I'm Steve Bynum, I'm in today for Jerome McDonald. And we're talking about Egyptian soap operas known as Musel Salat. And I am speaking with Professor Azathine Fisher from Dartmouth College, And some of his work has been adapted for Egyptian TV dramas. So um, let's talk about uh, these uh, soap operas specifically. Uh, What types of um, uh, plots do you have? Who are the characters? And what is it about uh, these soap operas that draw people, men and women alike?
1: Well, there are the usual kind of uh, the usual themes. You have the love stories. You have the family relations. You have things about uh, people from the countryside versus people from the city. You have things about decay, but also you have the political or the political content. For example, the um, um, the two novels that I wrote and were um, made into soap operas were about terrorism and how terrorism is actually created as a result or emerged as a result of state oppression. Mm. And um, that's, so obviously the depiction of the police in in this uh, soap opera is negative negative. and one of the things you know this is this is how the the situation changed in the last uh, four or five years is today you can no longer project these images so what happened with this particular case is that they changed the main they changed the content they changed the plot and the main characters in order to make it not about police brutality mm. and producers um, have no option but to comply because the if they don't comply, they can't either shoot or even if they had shot and completed their um, Musal they cannot air it with obvious kind of financial loss. So what you see is a kind of a complete revamping of the Musal scene in Egypt.
0: And a lot of self-censoring, I assume.
1: Self-censoring comes next, but um, now we are in the actual censoring. We have companies that are created by the state that buy out producers, and then they define and dictate on scriptwriters, on uh, directors, and on actors, what plots can they have and what they cannot, what type of character they can, who can get, who gets depicted in a positive or in a negative light.
0: So if I was thinking about a documentary about Um, this opera that was um, written or created by Chairman Mao's wife. And during the Cultural Revolution, it was the only play that could be seen in China. The only movie, only movies could be made about the play. The only songs that could be published were about the song. And that it, frankly, they were pretty bad. So typically, I would think when the state takes over, the quality of the art decreases. Am I wrong?
1: You're not wrong, um, but but we're not in the 1950s, and security agencies have learned a lot. And one of the things they learned is that it's a competitive market, so you cannot have just one product by the state. So what they did is, instead of asking state TV to produce Musal Salat, because they know this is a non-starter, they, they created, quote-unquote, private sector. They it's The equivalent would be, if you have the state buying out Hollywood and the main producers. And then you have a list of things, of plots that, are, that you can play and others that you cannot, and so
2: on.
0: So I just wanted to mention, you may be hearing some drilling in the background out there in the audience. We're having some construction going on here, and we're attempting to have that drilling tapped down, at least during our show. So I apologize for that. Uh, Professor, I wanted to ask, you know, recently we talked with um, the dean of Northwestern University in Qatar, and they put out a survey about uh, Middle Eastern uh, media and entertainment consumption habits. And what we're finding is that um, Middle Easterners are ha- taking a more favorable look at Hollywood and American media and entertainment and that they think that actually some of what comes out of Hollywood may be good for morality. Is that the case in Egypt or do you see that really that the regime there is sort of um, controlling those perceptions?
1: The Hollywood and American entertainment and media have been popular in Egypt and in most of the Arab world for a very long time, even when political relations were dire, even when as people have negative attitudes towards the U.S. policy or the U.S. government, they always had a favorable view of um, cultural production in the United States. And... um, I don't think the current regime, whether they like it or they dislike it, I don't think they have the ambition to kind of counter that. However, there is the the current regime sees the influence of global culture, obviously led by the United States, as corrosive and polluting for the what they see as authentic Egyptian culture. And what they're trying to do by controlling those salat is to kind of re-educate the Egyptian public in order to kind of reduce its vulnerability to this emerging global culture.
0: And finally, Professor, uh, before we go, usually when you have this sort of censorship and control, and you've seen it in uh, American uh, entertainment as well, uh, that there are lots of, there's a lot of innuendo, double entendres, and other ways where very smart artists can sort of sneak their messages in. Are you seeing that?
1: Yes that's unfortunately we have, we thought in Egypt that we had kind of gone beyond that already some 15 years ago and we thought that you know this is one thing of the past that artists writers and others had to use those in windows and kind of go back and create a, an old historical story to talk about the present for example but we're getting we're going unfortunately back to, to that spot again
0: great Professor Azathine Fisher is visiting professor at Dartmouth College. He's a political scientist, and some of his published work has been adapted for Egyptian TV dramas called Masasalat, where we've been talking about it. Really fascinating conversation from one soap fan to another. Thank you. Thank you. Will only Google and Apple dictate how we live? Find out next when we hear a conversation Jerome McDonald had with an expert on the ethics of artificial intelligence. That's in 90 Seconds on the Worldview from 91.5 WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum, and today for Jerome McDonald. Dr. J.T. Kostman is one of the world's top ethicists on the way technology impacts how we live. A psychologist by trade, he's also a data scientist, mathematician, and CEO of Applied AI. The organization aims to level the playing field for AI so not just the big tech companies possess it. Kostman has also worked with U.S. intelligence agencies, the Defense Department, and the 2012 Obama campaign. The chronic underachiever that he is, he's also a team leader with the Army Special Forces. And while in town last week for the Pritzker Forum on Global Cities, hosted by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, Dr. Cospin made time for a chat with Jerome McDonnell, and they began by discussing the organization's mission to level the playing field for artificial intelligence. So, JT, how do you get the big tech firms to share?
3: You know, you don't, Uh, and that's become a big part of the problem. Is the big boys don't share, and they have no intention of sharing. There was uh, an article in the New York Times, I think it was October twenty second, twenty seventeen, by Cade Metz, and he made the point in the article that there are are really only about ten thousand people in the world who actually know what they're talking about in AI, and the big boys are paying them these enormous salaries, anywhere from three hundred dollars to $500,000 for new kids and upwards of a million dollars for people with PhD and experience. And as a consequence, they're creating this sort of oligopsony of talent and they're hoarding all the people who have those capabilities. And so uh, my colleagues and I have decided that's just unfair. And we're going to democratize some of those same capabilities and bring them out to people who don't have quite those budgets.
4: Is this a good thing or a bad thing? You know, I talked with Amy Webb, a futurist, about her book earlier this year, and she makes the argument that people who are going to lead us to the next generation of artificial intelligence are the big boys, and if our big boys don't do it, the Chinese big boys will – and we're like in an arms race for artificial intelligence. And it's a good thing that these guys are powerful, that they've monopolized all the talent, and that they're focused on doing it because our government isn't really that concerned. We're, we're, we're just kind of cruising on the beneficence of these gigantic corporations.
3: Yeah, you know, I'll agree and disagree simultaneously. Let's see if I can walk that fine line there. I agree absolutely that the government isn't doing enough in fact is not doing anything i wrote an op-ed recently for government executive magazine calling out the administration on its utter lack of commitment uh, utter unwillingness to do anything to support but to think that we should rely on these monopolies oligopolies to be able to carry the day is wrong headed candidly, while they're paying these enormous fees for people to come in and do this sort of work, there are still lots of people who can do it, who aren't being leveraged, and who don't want to work for one of the big nine, who don't want to work for one of the giant tech companies. And what we tend to see whenever we see these closed environment is closed thinking, interesting things always happen in the open forum, always happen at the intersections. You know, there's a book years ago I read, uh, titled The Medici Effect. And it made the point that the Enlightenment was made possible by intersecting different people from different places with different ideas on different things. And uh, we find that's absolutely true in AI. What we're really in danger with now is not even with innovating new capabilities. You know, speaking of China and speaking of the uh, battle we'll have nationally. Kaifu Lee wrote a book recently, AI Superpowers, and he contended that China is winning and will win the race for AI. I, I disagree with him as well, uh, because really what he said in the book was, this is no longer about innovation, it's about implementation. And if that's true, and I think it is, then we should really be encouraging more diverse entrepreneurs to get into the game.
4: Well, is the implementation game something that, I mean, the the big boys are running the implementation game. They're doing all the experimenting. They're Amazon and Google and Facebook. They're the ones driving the bus on all that.
3: They are. But think about the business model and the business perspective and what runs all that. Most technology starts currently in Well, where the money is. Uh, They asked Willie Sutton, the bank robber, once why he robbed banks, and he said that's where the money is. And so we see a lot of AI starting now in marketing, advertising, and in games, basically in frivolities, as well as in the financial services sector. But as we're seeing these capabilities migrating into uh, more consequential arenas, into medicine, into education, into even manufacturing, and drug discovery, uh, all these other arenas that AI is able to access, that isn't within the providence purview or bailiwick of a Facebook or even an Amazon. We're going to see more and more if we want to evolve these capabilities and implement them more effectively in a broader swath of arenas, we're going to need a larger ecosystem and we're going to need more entrepreneurial players to be able to capitalize on those opportunities.
4: I'm talking with J.D. Kosman. He is CEO with Applied AI. It's an organization that aims to level the playing field for artificial intelligence. Now, if you're thinking the way you are, you must think that breaking up Google and Facebook would be a good idea because right now, politicians from the left and the right seem to be thinking that that is the way to do some of the things you're talking about, to level the playing field.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You know i unfortunately, I do agree with that. Uh, Robert Reich has said very publicly that the fundament of a working democratic capitalist system or a real uh, effective capitalist system and not a monopoly is basically predicated on just a few things. you have to have. Property rights, you have to have a mechanism of enforcing the laws, you have to have bankruptcy, you have to have uh, protections against monopoly. And when you have a monopoly, uh, people end up suffering by and large. We have convoluted and contorted the administration of the monopoly laws in this country over the last well, since the 1980s. And we are enforcing them less and less and less to the point where now there's a monopoly or an oligopoly in virtually every major industry, everything from airlines to banking, to hospitals, to mortuaries, to eyeglasses. And the big tech companies are sort of leading the charge in that regard. When you look at a company like Amazon as an example that has been inordinately successful, no doubt, and brilliantly led and managed, but is now controlling the entire supply chain and is looking to expand further and further, where is the opportunity for true innovation? Where is the opportunity for others to compete meaningfully? there comes a point where size becomes inequitable and it becomes unfair. If you control the water supply for a town, you shouldn't be able to decide that everyone has to pay you whatever they wish or they die of thirst. When these platforms are becoming the common denominator and the commons for all of us, uh, they have to be subject to some regulation. The same decisions we made with respect to everyone from Standard Oil to AT&T, How does this compare to what China's doing with
4: its tech sector? I mean, they're just building bigger and bigger, and they've got an entirely different approach than one that would break up monopolies. Their government's highly involved. They've got goals. They've got a strategy. It sounds like a philosophy that's entirely different than the one you're describing.
3: It does, and it is, but... I hear people from the left and the right always making the argument and the counter-argument. On the one hand, they're arguing about the monopolistic trade practices of China and the state influence on business and its inherent unfairness because of its size, scope, and power, and yet arguing that, shouldn't we be emulating that? So I don't think we can have it both ways. We can't decide on the one hand that we envy China's ability to grow large, uncontested competitors, Alibaba and uh, some of these others that are playing in that space, and yet a, a Tencent, and then likewise say, gosh, we envy that, and we would like to have that And yet, we don't want to have that run by the state. I don't know that I understand that thinking, that thinking that says that we're better off if a group of individuals control it who have no accountability to the electorate, who have no accountability to society. Their only accountability is to stockholders. Uh, Remember, since the 80s also, we've gotten away from this notion of stakeholder interest and board members are now exclusively focused on stockholder primacy and stockholder interest we can't have a company that's saying on the one hand we have a profit motive and our profit motive is only to benefit the very few who benefit from uh, our actions and the community has absolutely no say but then we should also not enforce monopolistic trade policies
4: what does a world with broken up tech giants look like in your mind? Is there a proper way to execute this? I mean, probably the, in my generation, breaking up the bell telephone empire was the primest example of a breakup of a monopoly. And people probably, and the man on the street probably thought, well, that didn't go so great for me. I didn't think that was such a fabulous thing. Um now I've got a million telephone companies calling me and wanting my business and things like that. How would, you know, a breakup of all these things, you know, create competition without just being annoying?
3: Yeah, I think AT&T is a great example. You and I are, uh, well, I was going to say approximately the same age. I've probably got a bit more gray hair than you, so sorry. Uh, but we can both remember a time when a long distance phone call was a big deal. right? Right. And by long distance, we meant someone calling from California to New York. We didn't mean calling Tokyo or calling London. That simply didn't happen. Now, to call from state to state is, well, there's no additional charge at all. The cost of telephone and telephone usage has fallen precipitously. Look at how those decreases in costs affected the modern internet. The internet couldn't exist in its current stage and incarnation if AT&T still had that monopoly and still had control of the phone lines. We would still probably have dial-up modems as well. We'd still be using POTS, the standard old transmission lines. And so that breakup really did have a very, very positive effect. It lowered costs, it increased competition, uh, it increased choice, and it increased opportunities for very various entrepreneurs and entities to be able to start their own businesses. Shouldn't we see the same sort of thing from the breakup of some of these entities? Some of them are are admittedly much more complex. Facebook and Google uh, tend to be fairly monolithic. But when you look at something like Amazon, that's so diversified, why is it necessary that Amazon Web Services, AWS, is owned by the same company that puts a smiley, gray box on my porch every day that owns grocery stores, that owns the warehouse, the fulfillment, the supply chain, that owns all of it. You know, everyone was lamenting from AT&T how this would be the end of telephony, how it would be uh, the end of commerce and the end of industry. You know, the market did just fine and did wonderfully well. Same thing with Standard Oil. Monopolies always tend to be antithetic to the public interest and antithetic to the interest of small and mid-sized businesses, which have increasingly suffered as a consequence of the the size and the scale. Uh, You look at like the HHI index that take Hirschfeld index that looks at how much businesses have consolidated over the last few years. Uh, The failure rate for small and mid-sized businesses has gone up commensurately.
4: I'm talking with J.D. Kosman. He is a CEO of Applied AI. It's an organization that aims to level the playing field for artificial intelligence. And we're talking about what to do with all these big tech companies right now. Is there a candidate out there uh, from either party that you think has it together when it comes to this kind of thing?
3: Boy, um, that's... uh... Uh, a tricky question, I have decided to not weigh in just yet on the candidates. Look, Andrew Yang is obviously very attuned to these issues. He's an entrepreneur philanthropist uh you know the founder of venture for america and and he's the obvious go to for people who are interested in, in this sort of perspective, but then of course. You know, you can't count out Bernie Sanders, uh, who's now being uh by Elizabeth Warren. On the other hand, I think very highly of Cory Booker, who has always been a champion of small businesses and opportunity. Uh, I, I think that there is no one from the Democratic side currently who really gives me concern and pause. What we really need is somebody who will take the interests of people who are not billionaires seriously. And that pretty much defines the entire slate uh, from the left side of the aisle.
4: Well, what about the right? The Trump administration seems to be looking into this, too. They've got some committees that they're drawing up to look into breaking up Uh, the big boys, does your lesson about don't take advice from from the billionaire's class uh, apply there?
3: Yeah, I've been very vocal about my feelings about the current administration and none of them particularly positive. Uh, I've seen some rhetoric. I've seen some talk. I've seen absolutely zero action. Every action that this administration has taken with respect to economic issues has ended up hurting The consumer has ended up hurting small and mid-sized businesses, everything from tariffs and trade policies to uh, enforcement actions to tax benefits. I haven't seen one positive thing anyone can point to, and I'm, I'm more than open to the conversation. And I have a number of friends who at least used to be far on the right, true conservatives. And I haven't heard one cogent uh, defense yet of the economic policies that are being advocated by the administration.
4: What are the consequences if we don't get it right on artificial intelligence and and executing this? I mean, there, there can be some pretty scary scenarios. Are you worried about them?
3: I'm deeply worried about them. And I think uh, they're more than profound scenarios. I think they're uh, potentially cataclysmic uh, implications. You know, um, Vladimir Putin did a, a a radio presentation to the schoolchildren across Russia uh, just a couple of months ago. And in the course of that presentation, he essentially said, that artificial intelligence, he said, is the future not only for Russia, but for all humankind. It comes with colossal opportunities, but also threats that are difficult to predict. And whoever becomes the leader in this sphere will become the ruler of the world. Now, I don't know if he means militarily or economically, but he's right. Uh, The economic implications of this are absolutely profound. In the U.S. alone, Forrester Research has projected that businesses adopting AI and big data are going to take $1.2 trillion from their less informed peers by the end of 2020. $1.2 trillion, that's more than the GDP of Mexico. That's nearly the GDP of Australia, shifting from those companies that don't have these capabilities up to those big nine, up to those companies we were just talking about, that will represent the largest economic shift in the history of the world.
4: All right. I guess that is something to be afraid of. That's that's plenty stiff. Well, is there something people can do about this? Is there some kind of focus that we can have in public policy that would help things m- manifest themselves in a positive
3: manner? Yeah. And I think we absolutely can. And it's not nearly too late. The greatest enemies we face right now are not AI. They're apathy and inertia. Uh, That AI, right? Um, uh, See, I'm going to have to keep that. I just thought (laughs) that. (laughs) But really, it comes to two things. It comes to the creation of these opportunities and being able to avail themselves of these opportunities for SMBs, for the small and mid-sized businesses. It also pertains to uh, the impact this is going to have on jobs, You know, through automation since 2000, We've lost 5 million manufacturing jobs in the U.S. alone through efficiencies and automation. The Oxford Martin School at Oxford University is projecting that 47% of U.S. jobs are at imminent risk of automation. These are externalities. These are challenges that are not going to be met by the companies. We keep saying, you know, they, with quotation marks, around it, should do something about it. Well, I keep asking people, who are they? They is got to be us. Those are social, political issues we have to address. There will be millions and millions and millions of people displaced as a consequence of AI and other technologies. But that doesn't mean other jobs won't and can't be created. They certainly can. But we need to start attending to that purposefully. And we need to realize that is not going to be Uh, an issue that the private sector will wrangle with, right? It's not in my interest uh, as a private company to retrain people for jobs that I don't even have and that they wouldn't likely stay for. That becomes a societal, a political issue and one that we're going to have to contend with, but it's something we've done before and it's something we simply have to do again.
4: J.D. Kosman is a data scientist, mathematician and psychologist and CEO of Applied AI, an organization that aims to level the playing field for artificial intelligence. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about what's happening out there with AI.
3: Thanks for inviting me, Jerome.
0: Man cook. Now that's not as gender offensive as it sounds. Find out why. Next on Worldview from WBEZ 91.5. view on WBEZ 91.5 I'm Steve Beineman in today for Jerome McDonald and for 30 years now folks have been gathering on the south side to break bread on Father's Day the event is called Real Men Cook and with us like every Monday is the illustrious Monica Eng to help us talk about why in some circles men who cook can still carry stigma hi Monica
2: Hey, Steve. Great Intra-
0: to be here. Int- Monica's Worldviews Fu- Food, Health, and Culture reporter. Monica, introduce our guests.
2: Well, today we have wonderful co-founder of Real Men Cook, Yvette Moyo, and Chef Harold Tinch. Welcome, guys.
5: Thank you so much. Thank you. Good afternoon.
2: So, so um, as Steve mentioned, this has been going on for 30 years. What was the genesis of this event?
5: I uh, was getting married to Kofi Moyo, who this is all modeled after. We had a big vent- blended family and the question was where, was, where were his children going to be on Father's Day? And so we heard of an event in New York, and it was really for single women to come, you know, give money for a nonprofit with single men cooking. And we changed it so that families could come, so that black men, the face of black men could be on Father's Day. And me, with my marketing background, thought it would be perfect uh, to say that all we want to see is our, the truth about our men in our community and we find globally that it's the same way that men have heart and the cooking sometimes a demonstration of their hearts.
0: Now, that's really interesting that there is still this stigma about men cooking, you know, this belief that only women should cook. You know, uh, my grandfather served in the military. Uh, my grandmother's brothers, they all served in wars. And, of course, as you know, the only thing that black men could do would either drive supply trucks or cook yes. or be chefs. And so when they came back from the war, I mean, they were excellent cooks. I mean, the, they were the best cooks in my family. My, but, my father,
5: too. My <laughs> father worked on a train, was in the military. Dairy and he cooked. And uh, when he cooked, it was a celebration. When my mom cooked, it was a job. So what happened? What, what, what do you think
0: happened that all of a sudden this art form that um, our, our fathers and grandfathers brought back all of a sudden became stigmatized again?
5: Um, you know, I think American, American capitalism has a lot to do with it, <laughs> where men, you know, were the breadwinners and women right. needed to be in the kitchen. And I think as uh, men uh, became, uh, got some Free time because they weren't doing the hard work mm. uh, They they wrote. And because of unemployment in our community, you know, you have to take care of who somebody has to take care of the family. And I think men rose to the occasion and rolled up their sleeves like artists and and threw down for their families. And they became got instant gratification as a result. And that's what our young men really want. Instant gratification and cooking is one way to get it.
2: Well, speaking of men who cook, Chef Harold Tinch, you've made a delicious dish for us here today. Can you tell us about this dish and about the kinds of things people will find at the event?
6: Um, this, the dish that I brought today, it was uh, it's a charmoula shrimp and grits. Mm. Um, oh, talk to me well. about what <laughs>
2: Charmoula is a that green sauce?
6: Shrimp and grits, yes, my wife's favorite a, uh, uh, yeah. combination. It's a uh, northern African uh, mm. sauce. Wow. Usually Usually... Uh, uh, reserved for like seafoods. Mm-hmm. anytime you go to a restaurant um you'll try mula usually be on like a white fish like halibut mm-hmm. or or something mm. of the sort and um just uh with real men cooks you just you'll just run into a lot of men that um that's that's built around brotherhood and just supporting each other and um just uh a lot of camaraderie and just people just sharing sharing recipes, sharing different techniques on uh, how to make different dishes. Um, it's just a fun time. Now, Harold and vet. Uh, aside from the cooking component, there's also
0: a healing component to Absolutely. this gathering. Can you talk about that?
5: Yes, the nonprofit Real Men Charities that began presenting Real Men Cook after about our 10th year, mm. where we were, had a, a for-profit where we just gave away the proceeds from the event. And then economic situation in the country uh, hit us, and we went to the nonprofit to present Real Men Cook. And so one of our missions is to build healthy families and communities. And so we have a health pavilion at Real Men Cooks. So you'll have your celebration food, the ribs, the chicken, et cetera. Sure. But you will also have things that vegans and vegetarians and other people with health issues will be delighted to see, which you mm. don't normally see at festivals Right. like this and that. Uh, we also do heart screenings. The Kidney Foundation will be there. Do you see uh, medicine has their doctors cooking healthier food. Uh, Oak Street Health is there talking about aging people. Um, and uh, ComEd sponsors our Kids Pavilion where we have healthier food, not just hamburgers and hot dogs. It's mm-hmm. not a cookout. It is a family celebration where food is sampled and pe- and family is celebrated.
0: Now, uh, Grit's Combined with anything, it's become this boutique kind of food. But mm. growing up, I had grits with everything.
6: So <laughs> yeah, tell, right.
0: tell yeah. us a little bit about this dish that we're eating, what's in it, and how it's made. and I mean, it is scrumptious. Mm, uh, it is. Well,
6: the grits were made with—they uh, were cooked with, with milk, mm. milk and water. And then there's a little gouda cheese, smoked gouda cheese oh. in the grits. Oh, you're speaking my language. <laughs> <laughs> gouda. And then so uh, with the uh, Brussels— the Brussels sprouts, Brussels sprouts were sautéed in, in uh, garlic nice, and a little canola oil, then the shrimp thrown in, <clears throat> sautéed with it, a little, uh, a little clam juice to mm. add to taste. And then the, uh, the chamoula, added that in and finished it with that and let it simmer for a little bit. And S- then brought it all together.
2: So is everything mm. at Real Men Cook going to taste this delicious?
6: <laughs> <laughs> yes, every year.
2: <laughs> I mean, t- tell me, like, how many different um, booths or setups will people find?
5: Okay, so sorry, you, yeah, I know you've got a full mouth. I would have about, it too. <laughs> about, yes, yeah. I'm cooking. I'm eating with a full yeah. mouth. It's about sixty cooks. Yeah. Some of the highlights are a tribute to uh, Leah Chase. Oh, right, owned, of Dookie Chase
2: Dookie who just passed in New away. New Orleans. Yes, I just ate there for the first time a week and a half ago. Wow.
5: One of our cooks, Reggie Carter, actually worked for. Um, Leah Chase. In New Orleans. In New Orleans. So this is authentic New Orleans cooking and a tribute to her Mm. at Real Men Cook. Uh, Then we have um, people that are called the Happy Gobblers and they'll probably do fried turkeys. Um, Then we have people doing um, um, a variety of shrimp. I think this guy said he had like 12 different varieties of shrimp. Uh, There's catfish uh, uh, roasted catfish. Um, and just a variety of – of um, we have Shawn Michelle's, which is a black-owned ice cream shop. Mm. And they have ice cream flavors like sweet potato pie and peach cobbler. Oh, yeah. Just, to, sure, you know, our sure. cultural soul is being touched at this event. And everything that you want is is there. We have dance breaks that uh, work with, uh, within the health realm of what we were talking about. So families dance together nice. in different times.
0: Yvette moyo know, and – Harold tinch They're both chefs, cooks, activists, and they're participating in the 30th annual Real Men Cook Festival happening on the south side. And so, aside from physical wellness, spiritual and mental wellness is also a part of the work that your not-for-profit does. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the genesis of that and um, other ways that utilize um, food combined with the spiritual and the mental to take a holistic approach to healing? Absolutely.
5: Our program manager, Obari Cartman, is a PhD in psychology. And his brother, his blood brother, is our executive director who got his undergrad from Morehouse. They both have hearts for men and for families. And so our everyday work, our every week work, includes a men's healing center at the quarry, which which Real Men Charities owns, which is a a location on the south side for art, culture, business, dining, entertainment, and events. And so at um, the heart of our work, is healing the spirit of our community that has been crushed by uh, low education, uh, low uh, economic opportunities. And so by doing things like West African drumming, mm. which is an aerobic exercise for mm. for males, doing our every Sunday all-male men's wellness circles that take place Peace at circles, the Peace circles, drumming circles. Yes, they right. are. And it's all-male, and a 10-year-old could be dropped off at the quarry for these sessions from three, from one to three, any given Sunday except Father's Day. Mm-hmm. And they can be dropped off to be with men that are going to talk about positive things where these young men can bring up a subject and have a, a man who really cares about them answer some questions about how they maneuver life in Chicago.
0: And it was a chef who initiated this from based on a tragedy in his life, correct?
5: Yes. Um, we um, experienced two or well, actually four suicides Within the Real Man Cook family, over the thirty years of people that were very close to us, one was our executive director's best friend, but one was uh, uh, interning under me to become executive director of Real Man Cook, and he won Master Chef. The on uh, it was a Fox TV wow. mm-hmm. show. He was on mm-hmm. twenty one weeks in a row and came in number two. Mm-hmm. And he was from Chicago. Had a degree from. Alabama A&M uh, in engineering sure. he was worked for the army corps of engineers chef Joshua marks mm-hmm. and uh through a series of events including the mm, the disappointment of losing i think and then the lack of uh attention something happens to our, our black men particularly during between the ages of 18 and 25 mm-hmm. where they just don't know what their future is going to be like and he was diagnosed as a bi- as bipolar
2: mm.
5: he went and um got some help and came back to Chicago and attempted to commit suicide. And instead of putting him uh, into the University of Chicago psychiatric unit, uh, the police took him to jail. Oh. And he spent about a week in jail. And yeah. he came out totally affected. Traumatized, and, of course. Yes. And then he was diagnosed as schizophrenic. And so he saw the diagnosis and it seemed to, like, really shake him up. And I believe that he was on a journey to end his life from there. You know,
0: it's just a snowball effect. You know, we hear a lot of discussion about the opioid crisis and um, Appalachian other you know, communities. And we don't talk a lot about suicide amongst um, African-American males and how much of a growing problem it is.
5: Yes, and we're talking about it every day. And we're attempting to save lives. And one of the ways is if we can get people to come out. Let's just say a young father that can't find a job that's kind of been ostracized because he's not living up to the American dream of what a man should be in a household. Mm. Um, he's off. And so you got to make sure you watch that kind of individual and bring them in to family celebrations like a real man cook and let them know at real man cook at our peace and possibilities tent that there are people here. There's something you can do every day with these real men and real men does have nothing to do with how much money you make. It's about your heart and your ability to admit that you might be vulnerable and need some help.
2: Um, that, that's, that's such an important part of your mission and, and that and Real Men Charities is, is, is the beneficiary of this event. And one of the things you have at the quarry also is a shared kitchen and one of the few shared kitchens on the south side. Um, Chef Harold, t- can you tell me about uh, why it's important to have a shared kitchen for young entrepreneurs?
6: Just or have, any entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah, just um um I can speak for myself. Just not having when you when you wanna start your career, you wanna start your own business and you don't have the capital to get your own brick and mortar or maybe a food truck or so you look for shared kitchens. And the majority of the shared kitchens in Chicago are located uh either up north or in the uh I think there's there's one in the West Loop, there's one out in Schaumburg, but none, not so much on the south side. So just having that accessibility to uh, to, uh, to just build a brand, just to build, build a company, um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's just a great opportunity.
2: But well, where can people find more about
5: this?
0: Yeah, how can people help who want to volunteer or offer their... Their wealth, their, their treasure, their time. Get tickets.
5: Get yes. tickets. Yes. Show up. <laughs> All of that. Uh, you can actually go to our Facebook pages um, at uh, Facebook, Real Men Cook, Chicago, or uh, Real Men Charities, and then our Real Men Charities website, Real Men Charities uh, Inc. inc. Org, or um, the Quarry Shy.com. And, and tickets the, cost? T- tickets are only fifteen dollars. Fifteen dollars, and everything you want to eat and drink once you get in. So all you can eat for fifteen dollars. Well, well you know, right. all you can sample because there you can are sa- sample oh, sizes. So I don't want to. So I don't want to. So if I put me. on a disguise and come back, <laughs> then I can get another sample. <laughs> yes, you can. You can get back in the line and sample sixty I different things. I just want to get that straight. That's right. The <laughs> thing right. is getting there at three o'clock, so you can you know you can ha- have enough time. Early to sample. bird
0: gets the word. right, and
5: then yes. after you pig out on everything, then there's also salads and watermelon and fresh things. Exactly. In drum circles, to right? In dance. And, you well. a drum and a dance. And yeah, dance. Every, every, every hour we're going
0: to have dancing. Yvette Moyo is a participating chef, and Harold Tisch is also a chef, and they're here from Real Men Cook. And they're having an, an incredible blast this weekend. It kept coming up soon on the south side of Chicago. Get more information. You can go to our website. Monica Ng, thank you so much. Thank you. We enjoy you every Monday. Thanks. I'm back tomorrow to chat with someone who can only be described as a unicorn. To my shock, there is, and has only ever been, one person of African descent to be mayor of a European city. To meet him, catch Worldview tomorrow at noon on 91.5 WBEZ. The show is produced by Julian Haida, and thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance, and thanks to the indomitable Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Steve Bynum, and you've been listening to Worldview on 91.5 WBEZ.